Welcome to this week's episode of the Nation Podcast brought to you by Athlete Nation. I'm your host, Colton Stone. Joining me is Riley Tincher, at Riley Tincher on Twitter. He's a former All-American pitcher at Wisconsin Whitewater, a Northwoods League All-Star, a speaker, and a mental conditioning coach. Riley, baseball season is in full swing. The College World Series wraps up. How have you been this summer? I have been great, uh, Colton. It's It's been a busy, busy summer. You know, you go from high school state championships to NCAA regionals to super regionals to now the College World Series. So my my time has been taken up with baseball, and I could not be happier because of it. So my summer has been great thus far. And Riley, you went through high school baseball yourself and college baseball yourself, a, a pretty illustrious career you had at Whitewater. Can you take me through the path or the journey from when you played in high school into college, and, and what was that like for you, and what was your experience? So I have to kind of start where my baseball career began. I started playing baseball when I was 14 years old. Uh, at the end of my eighth grade year, I, before that, had played just kind of wiffle ball in my neighborhood with my neighborhood friends. On occasion, we would go down to the Little League Diamonds outside of our neighborhood, and we would play home run derby. But none of us could hit it out, except for me, on occasion. And I kind of got encouragement from my friends saying, you know, you should probably you should probably try out and play competitively. So I heeded their advice and that summer I was introduced to competitive baseball and to say that my first impression of baseball was awful would be an understatement, mainly because I was ter- I was terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went I went over the entire season. And I'm not just talking not getting a hit. I didn't even touch the baseball. I, I didn't even foul tip a baseball. I struck out every single at bat. And the first game, I was playing left field, and I got ground ball in the outfield. And it went right between my legs and rolled all the way to the fence. And I ran quickly to the baseball, and I threw it, turned around and threw it to the wrong person. I missed the cutoff man. And what should have been a single ended up being a home run. Again, terrible. And after that, I think it was the third inning of the game, I was pulled from the game without explanation, just kind of, hey, you're getting replaced by this person. And that kind of was the result of the rest of my eighth grade season. The problem was I knew I was terrible. My teammates knew I was terrible. My parents knew I was terrible, and my coach knew I was terrible. He felt I was so terrible that he felt the need to lie to me and my parents about practice and game times just so I wouldn't show up. Then, at the end of the season, when the season was over and we broke out of the huddle for the last time, he took me aside and put his arm around me like a loving, caring coach does, and he told me three words that kind of stuck with me the rest of my career. And those three words were, you should quit. And he followed that up with, because I don't believe you have a future in baseball. And now at 14 years old, those are very devastating words to hear. Mm. I mean, at any age, those are very devastating words to hear. Especially from a coach who I desperately, desperately wanted the approval from. 
And at that point in my life, a very pivotal point, I had to make a decision. Do I listen to him and do I quit this sport that I love so deeply? Or do I follow that love? Do I follow that passion and do I continue on? And fortunately, I chose to ignore my coach, but I learned a very valuable lesson in that moment. And this is actually the first chapter of my book, Pitching Against Myself. And it's the title, You Should Quit. And the moral of the title is, or the moral of the chapter is, there are going to be people in your life who tell you that you can't do something. And there are going to be people that doubt your dreams and tell you that your dreams are quote-unquote impossible. But the truth is, it's not even about you and your dreams. It's about them. And they're just reflecting their unbelief on you. And it's our responsibility or your responsibility to ignore that. Because it's your life, not theirs. It's your dream, not theirs. Riley Tincher with me. Riley, going forward with the coaching that you do and the mental conditioning you do, how are you able to use that as a positive experience and maybe what not to do or how to better confront players about their craft or, or something they love? So a lot of it is a lot of it is confronting, so to speak, the people who influence. So in my case was coaches. So now I get the chance to you know, do a lot of speaking in coaching conferences. And I get to share my story with them and hopefully help them gain the perspective that their impact is a far greater than they think it is. And that they have a responsibility to pull out of their kids who they chose to coach, to pull out of them who they should become or who they can become And that's one of the greatest responsibilities in the world. And too many coaches, way too many coaches are abusing this responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I end my speech with them is with coaches, your kids, your athletes are going to remember you for the rest of their life. How do you want to be remembered? Again, it's really unfortunate that my coach had to tell me that at 14 years old. But my story is not unique. This is happening all over. And we like, as coaches, we like to throw around the word potential a lot. And we like to label kids. And we like to think that at 10 years old, we know the path of their life. And we know where they're going to be 10 years from now. But the truth is, we can't define potential. We can't define this kid's future. If they were to tell me at 14 years old, after I was told that I should quit, that I would later on uh, become an All-American in college and become an all-star in the Northwoods League, which is one of the best collegiate summer leagues in the country, mm-hmm. I would tell you that, they're, uh, that they were lying. But that's exactly what happened. But unfortunately, this coach gave up on me before that happened. And fortunately, the next year I was introduced to one of the greatest coaches in all of baseball, Coach Darren Everson. And the reason why I believe he's the greatest coach in all of baseball is because he believed in me more than I believed in myself. And he demanded more from me than I demanded from myself. And he took this 14-year-old, chubby, unathletic, unconfident, left-handed kid who wanted so badly to be a catcher and he loved, 
he lovingly and, and carefully told him, hey, let's let's shift our focus from being a catcher and let's let's turn you into a pitcher. And despite not getting a single out in my first appearance pitching, walked every single batter I faced. He didn't let me quit, even though I desperately wanted to. Instead, he continued to give me chance after chance after chance after chance. And the lesson to this is, it's amazing what can happen to a kid or to anyone when they have a leader who believes in them and cares about them for who they are, not what they produce, not their performance, not what they do for them on the field, but who they actually are. And that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to convey to these coaches that I get a chance to speak to. That's what I convey to these leaders of companies that I get a chance to speak to. Riley, moving from that second year you played baseball, you transitioned from wanting to be a catcher to being a pitcher. After that year, what changed and what did you start doing differently that got you more prepared for the journey you were about to be on? Again, I, I kind of owe this to Coach Darren Everson. Again, he's the he's now the minor league hitting coordinator for the Colorado Rockies. He'll be in the majors within this year, if not next year. But he created an environment for me to thrive, for all of us to thrive. We we had a program in high school that was very much like a college program. We took practice serious. We took school serious, um, and our practices were very detailed and laid out. He was the type of coach that you don't really realize how great he is until you leave and then you experience the other coaches who are far less uh, far less than them. I'll just leave it at that because they care less than him. Um, so really it was the environment. And, you know, I told you that he continued to give me chance after chance after chance. He, this was until I made the varsity team my junior year. And I, I actually was given the ball to start game two of the season and just like my first ever appearance pitching, I didn't get a single out. I walked every single hitter I faced. And as I was getting pulled from the game by Coach Everson, I look out into the stands and guess who's there? My eighth grade coach. And I got to the dugout. I put a towel over my head. And I just start crying. I couldn't help but think, you know, this is it. This is the end of my baseball career. I should have listened to my coach. I should have quit. And I couldn't help but think of how embarrassed I was because I didn't, it wasn't necessarily for me. It was because it was because I, I let down my teammates. I let down coach Everson who gave me all of these chances. And as we got home that night, luckily we came back and won that game. As we got back to the high school that night, he had me stay behind and go into the field house. And I thought, Oh, great. Now he's going to punish me. But he didn't. He had me throw a bullpen because I only threw about 30 to 40 pitches that game. Mm -hmm. And before the bullpen started, he took me aside and he said, Riley, watching you pitch today was like watching paint dry. And I started laughing and he wasn't. And he said, you took so much time in between pitches that I actually timed you one time. It almost took you two full minutes before you threw the next one. And the more time you took, the worse you got because you were overthinking. So in this bullpen, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, and I'm going to get you to stop overthinking. And after every single pitch I threw that bullpen, he was behind me yelling, again, again, 
again, over and over and over again. And he took me, as we were leaving, we were walking out of the field house, he put his arm around me, just like my eighth grade coach did. And he said to me, Riley, I'm, I'm going to give you another chance this weekend. And I want you to pitch the same way you just pitched that bullpen and the same way your teammates and I believe you can pitch. Now, those are very powerful words for a 16-year-old kid to hear. And the next game, I got the start, and I got up on the mound. I threw pitch one, which was strike one. And out of the bullpen, or out of the dugout, came this booming, echoing voice. And it was Coach Everson. And, and the reason why I say booming, echoing voice, he's a giant of a man. He's like six foot four, 300 pounds. He's huge. And he's got this thunderous voice like he's speaking through a megaphone at all times. And he yells, get back up there. And it kind of shocked me. So I hurry back up to the mound. I get set. I throw strike two. And again, he yells it, get back up there. So I hurry back up to the mound again, throw strike three. And after they throw it around the infield, which they do after every strikeout, I get the ball back again. And he yells it again. And he continued to yell it after every single pitch I threw that day, which was well over 100. And it was kind of funny because at the end of the game, I wasn't the only one that was hurrying up to the mound or hurrying to get to the next pitch. The opponent, the opposing hitters were actually running up to home plate to uh, just so he wouldn't yell at them. And because of his relentless, undying belief in me, and because of him giving me chances after everyone told him not to, I went from one week prior, not getting a single out, walking every hitter I faced, to the next week, a few short days later, actually, uh, breaking the school record in strike bus. And it was because of little things that we changed, but mostly it was because of his relentless belief in me. And again, it's amazing what will happen to someone when they have a leader who believes in them. And because of his relentless belief in me, the next year I got a scholarship to play junior college baseball, even though just four years prior to that I was told that I should quit. And I went to junior college and I had a terrible experience with another terrible coach. And I transferred to another junior college, North Iowa Area Community College, with Coach Todd Rima and Coach Travis Herger. Hmm. And again, it's amazing what can happen when you have a coach, let alone two coaches, who believe in you and demand more from you than you demand from yourself. And I had a great experience there. And after that, I transferred to Whitewater and spent three years there with another coach who believed in me. And because of this belief, I was able to win awards that I could only imagine. Riley, what was it like at Whitewater getting those All-American accolades, getting a chance to shine on a bigger stage than junior college, and getting another coach that, that put his full faith into his players? What was your experience there, and, and were there still struggles despite the coaching? So it, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of a funny story because um, much like it, it's like a cycle repeated itself. My first year experience of baseball was awful, followed by four great years with Coach Everson. Mm -hmm. Then my first year experience in college baseball was awful, followed by a great year with Coach Todd Lima and Coach Herger. Then I go to Whitewater, and actually my impression of Whitewater, my first impression of Whitewater, my first experience of Whitewater 
was awful as well. And because a lot of it was because I thought, you know, I'm transferring from a Division One junior college. I'm highly touted. I'm highly sought after. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go to a Division Three, and I'm going to dominate. And the first practice proved me wrong. I was dead wrong because I was surrounded by a whole lot of Goliaths who were very, very, very good at baseball. And this is what a lot of athletes struggle with. They're, they're the kings and queens of their high school. They dominate their sport, and then they get to college, and they realize they're on a team with everyone else who dominated their sport and everyone else who were king and queens of their high school. And that's kind of what happened to me at Whitewater. I was surrounded by a whole bunch of pitchers that were drafted and played professionally, uh, even though it was just Division Three, quote-unquote. And I had to fight to earn a spot because nothing's guaranteed in Division Three because there's no scholarship. Mm-hmm. And the first, the first practice in the spring, I jump up. We're, we're in like we're in the middle of our throwing cadence, and we're actually five throws in, I believe. And my my throwing partner throws one over my head, and I jump up to grab the ball. And as I'm coming down, I land on top of another baseball, and I roll my ankle and bust it. And you can hear two pops: the pop of the gloves of the ball hitting the glove, and then the pop of my ankle echoed throughout this field house. And that was another pivotal moment in my career. I had to make a decision. Do I let this injury defeat me? Do I just give up and give in to this year and just say, well, I'm just going to scrap this up and, you know, just move on to the next year? Or do I find a way onto that roster? And needless to say, I, I, I took what should have been a 12-week injury. Doctors told me I would be on crutches for four weeks, followed by a walking boot for four weeks, followed by another four weeks to fully recover. Mm-hmm. And five weeks later, I was on the mound in game one uh, against St. Thomas, who actually ended up winning the national championship that year. And did I come back too early? Probably. Actually, definitely. I definitely came back too early. And my performance suffered because of it. And I think I threw like four pitches that day. And two of them were doubles, and one was a home run. I didn't get a single out. Again, just like my first appearance pitching and my first varsity appearance. Didn't get a single out. Luckily, I didn't walk anybody, but I didn't get a single out. And the rest of my performances that year were very much the same. And I fell into this rut that a lot of players fall into, especially when they're not getting the playing time that they think they deserve. And that is the rut of complaining. I would find myself at the end of the dugout with all of the other complainers talking about how little playing time we're getting, talking about or bad-mouthing the players that are actually getting playing time that we think we're better than, bad-mouthing Coach Rowe because we think he doesn't know what he's doing and that we deserve a chance and he's not giving it to us. And this escalated into me sitting at the end of the bullpen or at the end of the dugout hoping and praying that Coach Vo wouldn't call my name because I didn't want to disappoint him again. I didn't want to go out there and get shelled again. Mm-hmm. And guess what happened? He actually did call my name. And my performance that game was very much like my first performance. I threw about four pitches. Two of them were doubles, and one of them was a home run. And after that game, I got a phone call, just like I did after every single uh, game I pitched in college. I got a phone call or text, and it was from Coach Everson. 
again, another reason why he's one of the greatest coaches I've ever had. And I start talking to him about my playing time. I start complaining to him about my playing time and about what's going on and about my injury and all of these other things. I'm pointing fingers. I'm making excuses. And all of a sudden, in the middle of our conversation, he tells me to stop. And he goes, Riley, losers complain. Champions contribute. I say, how can I contribute if I'm not getting playing time? How can I get playing time if Coach Vogue doesn't even know I exist? He doesn't even watch my bullpens. He doesn't even watch my practices. How do I get playing time? How do I contribute? And he says, I want you. He said, you can't control Coach Vogue. You can't control whether he puts your name in the lineup or not. But what you can control is how you prepare. And I want you to prepare for every single game as if you're going to start. And this is chapter six of my book, Scrubbing Bubbles. Because in high school, I had this very meticulous, tedious routine. Mm-hmm. It was like minute by minute. I knew exactly how many sprints I was going to run. I knew exactly how many pitches I was going to throw in my bullpen. I knew exactly what I was going to do, again, minute by minute by minute. And anything that veered off this path made me extremely angry. It was very OCD, but I contribute a lot of the success that I had in high school because of this routine, but I got away from it in college for some reason. They told me to get back on it. And part of that routine was cleaning my cleats before every single game with scrubbing bubbles. So baseball players, if you're listening, if you really want clean cleats, scrubbing bubbles is the key. And I got away from that. So the next weekend, we're playing our rival Stevens Point at Stevens Point. And I start to prepare for every game as if I'm going to start. I listen to the same music. I prepare mentally. I visualize. I clean my cleats. I'm doing everything as if I'm going to start. Was my name put on the lineup? No. All four games. Didn't pitch. A single inning. All of a sudden, I'm getting off the bus that weekend. And Coach Vogt pulls me aside. And he does something that he's never done before. He was notorious for not telling pitchers who was going to start until about an hour before the game. And it was because of that reason. He wanted to see who was ready. And he saw that I was preparing for every game as if I was going to start. And finally, that week, the midweek game, he gave me a start, and it was one of the best performances of my college career. And I took this with me for the rest of my career. I prepared for every game as if I was going to start. And I went from pitching 13 innings my first year at Whitewater to winning 13 games the next year and leading the entire NCAA in victories. And it was a lot due to the fact of how I prepared and mainly preparing for every game as if I was going to start, even if my name was not in the lineup. Riley, before we move forward with your baseball career, I wanted to go back when you were talking about high school kids that come out and think they're all that. They're built up with this ego when they get into college. With your experience with mental conditioning, have you run into that a lot? And what is your approach with it? Yeah, um, it's it's kind of like, uh, it's a great question. It's a great question, Colton. It's kind of like, uh, I kind of refer back to this conversation I had my year after I was an All-American in the All-Star in the Northwood League. Uh, I was approached by one of the legendary Whitewater baseball coaches, Coach Jim Miller. Uh, God rest his soul. He, he passed away a few years ago because of cancer. And he pulled me aside. It was like the first day of school in the fall of my senior year. And he starts talking to me about what, do I, what I want to accomplish my senior year. And he stops me in the middle of it and he says, Riley, 
um, you know, winning All American Award, winning Pitcher of the Year Award, being an All Star in the Northwoods League is great. But what you do after that is what matters the most. And the problem is, you're going to go out there and pitch, and every single team you face is going to play against you like they're playing their World Series. You have a huge target on your back. And do you know how you beat them? Through your work ethic and through your preparation. I think a lot of I think a lot of athletes in general get away from what got them to that level, meaning the process, meaning their preparation. So a lot of times my job as their coach, specifically their mental conditioning coach, is to shift their fo- their focus back to the things that got them there. It's not just their talent. It's not just because their names are always in the headlines. It's because of what they've done to gain that talent, to master the gifts that gifts has been given, and that is through preparation, and that is through the process. Because the whole outcome, the awards, the games, all of that stuff is out of our control. Those are just kind of recognition for the players that we already are, but we get so focused on it and we get lost in it that we lose what, what got us there in the first place. And those are the little things in the preparation. That's the routine. That's how you approach practice. That's the intent of every swing you have. That's the intent of every pitch you throw, even when you're just playing catch. So, again, it's just a shift in focus. Let's get back to where we were, which what got us here. Let's focus on the preparation. Let's focus on what we can actually control. Riley, how have you been able to help not only yourself find your identity, but but help other people find theirs. You know, we have this mantra of, of more than an athlete, but it really is true. Everyone is more than an athlete, and they just use sports as their platform. So what did you do to realize your identity, and, and what have you done to help other athletes realize theirs? That, that's the best question of the interview, Colton. It's, 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 so we're kind of fast-forwarding here. Um, so after a lot of it, again, it, it ties into my story, in the fact that I got done with baseball. Um, this is actually two-sided from the conversation that I had with Coach Jim Miller. It was a great refocus on what got me to becoming an All-American. And also, unfortunately, it added a lot of pressure onto me, a lot of pressure that I added onto myself. I was a captain. I was, you know, returning All-American and I was trying so badly to repeat my performance, to be perfect, to be the captain of the team and get 50 guys on my side to listen to what I have to say, to take things seriously, to want the same things I wanted. And this pressure, this pressure added up until it almost, it almost crushed me. Um, my first day of winter break, uh, depression hit me real hard. And I was driving home to the house I grew up in. It was late at night, and I was I was driving, and suicidal thoughts hit me very hard. And I thought, you know, if I just if I just swerve into a tree, or if I just swerve into a semi truck, all of this pain, all of this pressure that I'm feeling right now could just end. And I decided that uh, I was going to go through with it. And I sat at this intersection between two highways, Highway 26 and County Road End, just outside of Whitewater. And I sat there for what felt like an eternity waiting for a semi-truck to come down the highway. 
And when one finally did, as it got closer and closer, I started closing my eyes. I gripped the steering wheel tightly. Tears are rolling down my face. And I uh, slowly let go of the brakes, and I roll out into the highway, hoping this semi-truck would hit me. And it didn't. And what also felt like an eternity, I finally closed. I finally opened my eyes, and I looked to my left where the semi-truck was coming from. And he had stopped about 20 yards away from me. And he was honking his horn at me. And I was so embarrassed. And I peeled off the highway. And I never told anyone about that moment. And for the rest of my senior year, I, I carried this around with me. And I desperately wanted to tell people about it. But at the same time, I was thinking, you know, I, I'm the captain. I'm the All-American. I'm the one signing all the autographs. I'm the All-Star in the Northwoods League. I'm the one everyone looks up to. My face is on all the billboards and posters. I can't let them know that I'm struggling. I can't let them know that I'm weak. And by ignoring it, it didn't get better. It got worse. Especially when my escape, my identity, baseball, was taken away from me. And luckily I was good in school. I got accepted into grad school at Bell University. But this was just a distraction. And this identity crisis got worse. And a lot of it was because I dedicated my life to this sport. And I went from my senior year, one of the best weeks of my life, leading my team to the College World Series, winning several awards again, to the worst week of my life, which was losing to a team I had I should have beat. And not getting any phone calls or letters and not getting drafted and not hearing from all of these proteins that were reaching out to me before and not getting that chance that I've dedicated my whole life to getting. And to make matters worse, there were guys that I was playing against in the Northwoods League who are now in the major leagues who I was striking out and getting out on a regular basis. And there were teammates that I had who I thought I was better than that were getting chances that I wasn't. I didn't know why. So I carried this again with me to Baylor until about a few weeks prior to winter break. I finally decided that I've had enough of this. And I decided I'm going to take my own life again, this time through a gun. And literally seconds before I was going to pull the trigger, I thought I'd turn my phone off, but I guess I didn't. My phone rang, and it was a former teammate of mine who flew into Dallas-Fort Worth, and his flight home got canceled. And Waco, where Baylor is, is an hour south of Dallas. He knew this. And he thought it was a good idea or a good chance for us to catch up. And I answered the phone distraught. I couldn't even say a word. And he hopped in a rental car and he stayed on the phone with me for the full hour until he got down to Waco. And then he stayed with me for a few days just to make sure I was okay. And this was just kind of, again, covering the symptoms, covering the sadness, covering the depression, covering the suicidal thoughts. It wasn't getting to the root cause of the issues. So... Again, I carried this with me, and nothing really got better. It got worse. And finally, the third time, a few years later, I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this seriously. I'm going to plan the day I'm going to do it. I'm going to plan how I'm going to do it. I'm going to say all my goodbyes first. I'm going to write a suicide note. And on the day, I plan on killing myself. I get a phone call again from a mentor of mine whom I hadn't heard from in a, in a long time. And I answered thinking it would be the last time I would ever talk to him. And thank God I did 
because he saved my life. And out of this conversation came purpose. I didn't know it at the time, but it was there. You see, he refused to accept my answer of I'm fine when he asked, when he asked me how I was doing. And he continually asked, no, really, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? Until I finally told him what I was planning on doing. And again, he stayed on the phone with me until I promised that I wouldn't go through with it. And then he called me every hour on the hour for the next couple of days. And in these phone calls, he poured truth into me. He encouraged me. He counseled me. And in one of these conversations, he says, Riley, there is purpose in our pain. We don't go through what we go through for ourselves. We go through what we go through to help others who are going to go through the same thing. Now, at the time, I didn't know what this meant because I was literally in one of the darkest periods of my life where I felt like I was drowning every day of my life. And out of this conversation also came this encouragement to start writing in a journal about my entire baseball career from start to finish. Every little detail of it, every story, no matter how humiliating, no matter how embarrassing, just write it all down. Because before that, I put baseball aside. I became very bitter towards baseball. I wanted nothing to do with it. I couldn't go to games because I didn't want to know what it was like to sit on the other side of the fence. And my, this bitterness grew. And I put it away thinking it would go, just go away. But again, things don't just go away on their own. They get worse. And that was until I started writing in this journal. And as I was writing, we decided to write a page a day for a year, one page a day for a year. And he would text me every morning at 8 a.m. saying, have you written today? Or did you write today? Did you write today? And as I was writing, I started healing because I started addressing some things that I had suppressed deep down inside. Things of my past, things of my childhood, things with my family, things with baseball. And I started realizing how great it was that I had this opportunity to play this sport that I love and all of the great people that I met through it. And another thing started happening. As I was writing, I started meeting more and more athletes who were struggling with the same thing. Identity crisis, depression, not knowing what to do with life after sports, not knowing who they really are. And the stories that I heard were so heartbreaking that I became incredibly discontented. And I told my mentor about this. He said, laughing. I said, what's so funny? And he said, remember that one of those conversations we had early on where I said, there's purpose in our that we don't go through what we go through for ourselves. We go through what we go through to help others. We're going to go through the same thing. This is it. This is it. And that's when my journal turned into my book. And the book changed. So now it's not only about my story, but every single chapter is followed up by a section called Knowledge Applied, because to me, Knowledge Applied is wisdom. And wisdom is greater than silver and gold. Wisdom is the greatest thing we could ever receive. And in this section is a life lesson that I learned in that season of my life, in that chapter, pun intended, of my life, and how it's applied to my life after sports, and how it can apply to the reader. So the text changed. The purpose of the journal changed. And again, the text changed from, have you written a page today or have you written today to create what you wish existed? Because I don't know any, I don't know any books that are helping athletes transition out of sports. 
I don't know any books that are teaching athletes the life lessons they're learning in their sport. I don't know any books that are teaching identity specifically to athletes. So my why, my purpose began to grow. I believed in a future. I believe in a future where every athlete understands that sports do not define who they are. But I didn't know how I was going to do this. I didn't know what it was. And when I finished my book, at the beginning of every chapter in every single book, not every single book, most books, there's drop caps, which is the first letter of, of the book, which is usually three lines uh, and big, bold letters, drop caps. And I wrote 20 chapters, and the drop caps of my book spelled out, I am more than an athlete. And boom, it hit me. That's it. That's the message. So I wrote a conclusion, and I talked about this, that you are more than an athlete, that sports don't define who you are, that you are more than anything you have done, are doing, and ever will do, and your performance doesn't determine your, determine your value, and that you are more than your circumstance. You are more than who others see you are, even your parents, even your coaches, and that you are more than who you believe you are. And so I start sharing this. And I start speaking about identity and teaching athletes that this sport that you are playing, that you are dedicating your life to, there is more to it. There is more to life than this. But it's your responsibility because of the gifts you've been given to maximize them. And that this sport you are playing is not your calling, but it is the platform. And it's going to lead you to the thing that you're supposed to be doing. Because if sports were it, our lives would end. And actually, they say athletes die twice. Once when their career ends, and the others when they actually die. And this whole notion of you're only as good as your last at bat is bullcrap. And the fact that, oh, these are the best years of your life, no, that's not true. Your glory days are ahead of you, not behind you. Best is yet to come. But again, this is hard to understand because once that career ends, you spend the rest of your life wishing you could go back and relive it. So my job is to help kind of transition. No, no, no. Everything you've learned to be successful in sports is everything you need to know to be successful in life, and these are how they apply. So that's, that's how, I'm, how I'm helping these athletes to transition out of their sport, to realize that they are more than athletes and to realize who they truly are and what that actually means. And, and Riley, we say it's become an epidemic. People are struggling with their identity and, and dealing with struggles and problems that we may not be able to see on the surface. What is your view on, on why this is rising and, and why we're in this mental health epidemic? That's a great question, Colton. You know, there's, there's so many different factors that go into it. The way they're raised plays a huge role in it. Their parents, their relationship with their parents plays a huge role in it. The environment they grew up in plays a huge role in it. But I think the biggest one, uh, and this one has become more and more and more, is comparison, and especially with social media. The problem with social media, it's great for communication, but we have become far less connected because we are constantly comparing our behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reels because no one's posting their real life on social media. 
everyone is posting the good parts. And what the problem is, is we like to think that because this person posts every single picture of them happy, that they're always happy and that they never struggle. Or if they post a picture with their significant other, always happy and always loving on each other, that everything is always good. And that the minute something goes wrong in our lives, oh no, something is terrible. So the problem is really the fact that we don't think we should have problems. But to even go further into this comparison, when we have issues, when we, when we struggle with things, we like to exaggerate them and internalize them. Meaning we like to think that we're the only ones going through it. But I can promise you through the athletes that I've worked with that that is just simply not true. I've worked with, I've worked with a uh, former Heisman Trophy winner who struggles with self-worth. We're talking about the best college football player in the country, and he struggles with self-worth. And it's because he feels like nothing he does is good enough for his father. I worked with an all-pro athlete who just, or all-pro football player who just signed a contract well over $100 million and has a entourage of five to ten people around him at all times, and yet he struggles with loneliness because he keeps everybody at a distance because he thinks that if they knew the real me, that they wouldn't like me. Does this sound familiar? A lot of people struggle with this. But the problem is we like to put these athletes up on pedestals, and we like to think that because they make millions and millions of dollars and that they have every resource available to them, and they've been gifted physically better than anyone else in the world, that there's no possible way that they could have problems. And I'll end with this story. I recently started working with a second-round draft pick uh, who was drafted at 18 years old, was given $1.5 million. And his first season, he had Tommy John surgery, surgery on his elbow. And a year later, that $1.5 million was gone because he spent it all on drugs. Because when he had that surgery, he got addicted to opioids which turned into heroin. He came to me, not telling me this, that he has been in and out of rehab ever since. He came to me because he's trying to make his way back. He has major league stuff. He can touch 100 miles an hour. He has a devastating breaking ball. And in the bullpens, he is lights out. But when he goes out on the mound in a game, he's a completely different pitcher. So I start talking to him. He has performance anxiety. And I ask him the question that I ask a lot of athletes. Who are you trying to impress? And the answer to that question tells me a lot about who you are and who you think you are. And he tells me his dad. So I tell him to tell me about his relationship with his father. He goes, I haven't talked to him in four years. I said, why? He goes, well, we have this rule in my house where if we had a bad outing on the mound, according to my dad, he wouldn't talk to us until we had a good start. And I, I, I was at complete shock, speechless. And I said, when did this start? And he goes, well, ever since I can remember, ever since I started playing baseball. 
at six years old. And I was like, what? Could you imagine at six years old, one of your parents not talking to you because you had a bad start and not talking to you until you have a good one or not talking to you because you didn't have a good enough grade on a test and they're going to not talk to you until you get a good grade. Could you imagine that? And knowing what I know about opioid addiction, you know that the vast majority of people who struggle with opioid addictions have a neglectful relationship in their childhood, particularly from someone who had most, had the most influence on them a father, a mother, a coach, and in his case, it was his father. And come to find out that his father was a two-time All-American in college. He was drafted, and much like 65% of all minor league baseball players, he becomes an alcoholic, and it ruins his career, and now he's been living vicariously through his son ever since. And the reason why this kid has performance anxiety is because he's desperately trying to impress his father. So ever since that day, I've been talking to him about not even his father determines his worth and talking about who he really is and what that truly means and that there is more to life than this sport that he plays. And he's just about to sign a professional contract in a week and will be playing shortly here soon. Uh, in the minor leagues and hopefully major leagues soon. Um, but it stems from identity. So I want to, I just want to say, I know we have this stigma attached to, uh, mental health and mental health comes in many different forms. It comes in addiction. It comes in depression. It comes in anxiety. It comes in suicide. It comes in domestic abuse. And a lot of times we want to, we want to point fingers and we want to criminalize and we want to judge specifically when it comes to domestic abuse. But the question that I always, I always ask when something like that happens is, what was their childhood like? So I'm telling you, I know this is so cliche to say, if you know someone or if you are struggling, please have the courage to reach out. You may not be able, you may be struggling right now and you may not even be able to identify it. You need help. We all need help. You know, there's a stigma attached to psychology that, you know, only people with real problems go to see them. And it's true because we all have real problems. And I'm not just talking about minor ones. I'm talking about major ones, ones that we don't want to tell our friends. And I also want to put it on the listeners who may not be struggling right now. I think it's your responsibility as a friend, as a family member, to reach out to those you love and to connect with them. Reach out to the strong ones, the ones who always portray to have it all figured out. Reach out to the ones who used to be around a lot, but you don't see a lot anymore. Reach out to those people. Because clearly, money is not the answer. Fame is not the answer. Physical gifts are not the answer. Jobs are not the answer. Working is not the answer. Followers on social media are not the answer. Connection is the answer. We need each other. And the only way we can do that is if we put the phone down, stop swiping through social media, and we actually start to have face-to-face meaningful conversations with one another. That's where the true connection happens. Riley, I'll get you out on this. 
through your opportunity and experience of, of mental conditioning and, and your baseball career, what, at least of recent time, has, has been your biggest inspiration or kind of what experience has left a lasting impression on you? That's uh, another great question. Another great, great question. Um, this could go so many different ways, but the one that's really been hitting me lately is, you know, when I first started speaking, I just kind of talked about identity and purpose, but I wasn't really sharing my own personal stories and my message wasn't really resonating. It was getting across to the people I was talking to, but it wasn't truly deeply impacting the people. And it was because I, I would always tell myself before my speeches, you know, it's not about me, it's about the message. It's not about me, it's about the message. And I was talking to one of my mentors about this a few months ago, and he, he simply just told me, you know, the message is because of your story. Share it. If you want these kids to resonate with you, you have to be real with them. And since there's this kind of stigma attached to mental health, depression, suicide, things like that, uh, I didn't want to share it. I didn't want to talk about my struggles with depression and suicide. And one day I, I finally was just like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I talked about it, and I've been talking about it ever since. And the people, the kids who come up to me after I'm done speaking and thank me, hug me, a complete stranger to them, and share their struggles with me, again, a complete stranger, is heartbreaking. Especially the way they look at me like I'm the first person to tell them that it's okay not to be okay. And that they're not alone in their fight. But at the same time, it brings me fulfillment and purpose knowing that I have finally planted that seed in them. So I would say that has been the greatest experience thus far. And the messages that I get afterwards are just phenomenal. Um, and I'm finally starting to resonate. And it's because I started finally sharing my story and my own personal struggles. And this is a question I get a lot with coaches is how do I get my, how do I get my athletes to buy in? How do I get my athletes to be more vulnerable with me? Because if I'm a coach and I'm trying to get my athletes to become the best athletes they can be, I need to know everything that is hindering them. And the problems that they have on the field, those are just symptoms. There is something else going on in their life. And I think it's the coach's responsibility to figure out what that is. And if they don't know how to fix it, hire someone who can. So the question I get is how do I become more vulnerable? And in my experience, the reason why these kids share their story with me, again, a complete stranger, is because I'm first vulnerable with them. And this plays into the true narrative that people would rather follow someone who is real than someone who always pretends to be right, who always pretends to have it all figured out. But I get it. In sports, there's this stoicism that's attached to it. And it's causing a lot more problems than it is fixing them. And just like I struggled with my senior year, you know, putting this mask on, not letting anyone know that I was struggling, 
It didn't make matters better. It made them worse. And you're starting to hear this more and more and more with athletes. Just recently, a 2016 study on clinical depression among student-athletes came to the surface. And it showed that 30% of the athletes that were done in this, that were pulled in this study, 30, 37% of female track and field athletes struggle with clinical depression. 37%. And 30% of women softball players struggle with clinical depression. Then it was 30% women's soccer, and then it trickles all the way down to 17% of baseball players. Mm. 17%. So if we're taking 100,000 baseball players, you're saying that 17,000 of them are struggling with clinical depression. And those are the ones who actually admit to it. Mm. So to be able to talk about this stigma, to be able to openly talk about depression and suicide, and to hear the response I'm getting specifically from the athletes that I'm trying to help. I'm trying so badly to help because there are people that are dying. And instead of talking about it, we're trying to figure out why it's happening. Instead of opening up and helping these kids, we're trying to politicize it. And that just can't be done. So, I'm, I'm, I, again, I'm on a mission to share this message. If you are more than an athlete. You are more than your circumstance. You are more than anything you have done, are doing, and ever will do. You are more than who you believe you are. And what you do does not define who you are. And it never will. To as many aspects as I can. And by being on this podcast, I am taking one giant step forward. So thank you so much for allowing me to be on this platform, Colton. Well, Riley, I, I really appreciate you taking your time with me as well. And we're we're really excited to, to get your story out there. We think it's a good one. And... And you're right. It's 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 become kind of an epidemic, and and really commend you for kind of what what mission you're on, and taking your experience and being able to use it in, in a positive way, finding a way to spread your message to help others. Um, where can people find your book, and where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you? Um, if you could give us that info. My, uh, my book is available on RileyTincher.com. I actually created a discount code for all Athlete Nation listeners. Uh, it's Athlete Nation 20, uh, and it'll be for 20% off. So you can find it at RileyTincher.com. Again, that code is uh, Athlete Nation 20 for 20% off. It's also available on Amazon. Um, and then if you want to reach out to me, I'm on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, at Riley Tincher, just how my name is spelled, or you can email me at Riley at RileyTincher.com. Thanks, Riley. You have a great rest of your day and have a great rest of your summer. You too, Colton.